I just want to say a couple things before. How many of you were able to either uh, online in some way, fashion, Friday night and Saturday, uh, see the return? Okay. Some of you, okay, it was an incredible thing. There were thousands of people that came to march and pray in a prayer um, uh, with uh, Franklin Graham leading that. And then we had Jonathan Kahn leading a, uh, a message. And a, basically it went from 9 at night um, in the Friday night and then 9 a.m. to 9 p.m. last night. And a powerful, powerful time of worship and praise and, and prayer and repentance. In the morning, yesterday, President Trump and his wife, Melania, sent this message to all of them at the prayer and return. This is to the National Day of... It says, on this inaugural National Day of Prayer and Return, the First Lady and I joined millions of Christians here in the United States and around the world in prayer as we turn our hearts to our Lord and Savior. Our great nation was founded by men and women of deep and abiding faith, a faith that has stood the test of time. 400 years ago, early American settlers trusted their lives to his providence and braved a voyage to the new world. From the pilgrims who sought his protection aboard the Mayflower to countless believers who today bow their heads to ask for his guidance during these unprecedented times, our country continues to turn to the Lord. Following in our ancestors' footsteps, we continue the firm reliance on the protection of divine providence that provides us enduring strength and reassurance in our times of needs. The trials and tribulations of the American people have faced over the past several months have been great. Yet, as we have seen time and again, the resolve of our citizenry, fortified by our faith in God, has guided us through these hardships and helped to unite us as one nation under God. As we continue to combat the challenges ahead of us, we must remember the sage words of President George Washington during his first presidential address. Quote, propitious spiles of heaven can never be expected on a nation that disregards the eternal rules of order and right, which heaven itself has ordained. As a country and a people, let us renew our commitment to these abiding and timeless principles. Today, I am pleased to join my voice to yours in thanking God for blessing this nation with great power and responsibility. With reverence, humility, and thanksgiving, we beg for his continued guidance and protection. President Donald Trump. Yes. I have to say that we live in unprecedented times. We've never, we have never had a president that gave an address at the United Nations calling on us to be aware and address the persecution of Christians worldwide. I don't know if you listened to that. If you didn't listen to that ever, go find it online. He defended the rights of all believers as well as all faiths to have freedom of religion at the United Nations. He is the most pro-life president and is openly supportive of pro-life religious freedom. What he said yesterday, his participation was unprecedented. 
keep praying for our president. He's an amazing man of God. Father, I pray now that as we go into the word, the living word of God, that nothing in me would get in the way of what you want to say to us today and that you would encourage our hearts and change our lives in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you have purchased a product, bought a car or an appliance, ordered something online through Amazon, and been disappointed? Anybody? It just, the picture just yeah, it doesn't match up. No, whatever. How many of you have bought something that worked just fine until the warranty ran out? It's the washing machine. I know that's how that happens. How many of you have ever seen a TV commercial for a product and the president of the company said, I guarantee it? Okay, yeah, guarantee. If you are like me, you like guarantees. You like a store that stands behind its product, a warranty that lasts, a guarantee that I will get my money's worth. There's a story that is now somewhat of an urban legend. A man received a shirt and a tie as a gift. The shirt didn't fit, and he didn't like the tie. He was traveling through Seattle and stayed a few days. And while he was there, he decided to take his shirt and tie, his gift, to the local mall to see if he could exchange it for something he could wear. So he brought them into a department store. The clerk helping him discovered three things. Number one, the man did not have a receipt. Number two, they did not carry that brand of shirt or tie. And thirdly, the shirt and tie were not even purchased at that store. But because the store's guarantees are so good, the clerk found him a shirt and tie that fit and that he liked and exchanged it straight across the board. The store? Nordstrom. Nordstrom. I like that kind of guarantee. Well, today we're going to look at a guarantee. It's a guarantee that's far better than Nordstrom's. It's better than the FDIC insuring your money. It's better than the U.S. government standing behind your T-bills. It's a guarantee that does not need more money for an extended warranty. Today we're going to look at I guarantee it. We're going to look at two verses in Ephesians to look at God's guarantee. I'd like you to turn with me. It's on page 947 in the Bible. In the rack in front of you, it's Ephesians 1, verses 13 to 14. Ephesians 1, 13 to 14. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. This passage begins with the phrase, and you also were included in Christ. You were included in Christ. And to be included with Christ expands our, our understanding of who we are in Christ. We've talked about that the last two weeks, who we are in Christ. We find in verse 4, he chose us, he took the initiative and made a plan to choose us. He adopted us, so he included us in his family, made us part of his family. Last Sunday, we looked at the fact that he redeemed us, or he bought us back. 
His death, his sacrifice, his crucifixion paid for our sins. It bought the right to be forgiven and restored in relationship with God. That's what God did for us. In verse 3, it says he gave us every spiritual blessing in heavenly realms. So God chose us, he adopted us, he bought us, he blesses us. Now he follows it up and he says, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. So what is the basis of this guarantee? How do we know we get this guarantee? How does it come about? First of all, it's all based on something called truth, on truth. Roman numeral one, it's hear the word of truth. Hear the word of truth. This guarantee comes first when we actually hear the word of truth. Now let's talk about hearing for a minute, letter A. Hearing, Romans ten seventeen says, consequently, faith comes from hearing the message, and the message is heard through the word of Christ, or it's heard the truth. The challenge many people face is that they don't hear correctly or they don't hear clearly. A lot of things can prevent us from hearing the truth. Now, in 1976, I was teaching in western North Dakota, and I used to run for exercise. I I gave it up some years ago for my health, but I ran for exercise. (laughs) And my daily route took me past the gas station, which was set back from the road. And it was a windy, cold day, so I had a stocking cap on. I was all bundled up. And as I passed the gas station, one of the high school students that worked at the gas station stepped out of the gas station, looked at me, and he yelled something at me. It sounded like an obscenity. Now, I didn't stop then. I bet I just kept running on. And the the further I went, the, I, the angrier I got, the angrier. I said, how dare he, I'm, I'm a teacher at his school. He dare says that to me. I couldn't believe he'd say something like that to me. The next morning, I was still hot, so I called him in my, into my office to interrogate him. And he looked at me with great puzzlement. And he said, all I said was, pump your arms. I misheard. My hat, the wind, whatever, And I don't know if you've ever had that experience. Somebody yells something across the yard or from one side of the house and you mishear it. And yeah, there's some things that affect our hearing. And those are embarrassing moments. That's distorted hearing. We have some obstacles that are hearing, hearing the truth. We need to understand that there are obstacles to us hearing the truth. There's background noise that tends to drown it out. There are contradictory claims there are competing ideas, or there's just plain miscommunication. You say something to your spouse, and they hear something totally different. Well, that's an obstacle to hearing, mis- miscommunication. That's an obstacle to hearing the truth. Then there are what we call filters to hearing the truth. Number two, filters. It might be our worldview, our way of thinking, what is our ultimate authority, how we define truth, why we do certain things. One of the filters to hearing truth is something called reason. Reason. What I think truth is, and I've reasoned it out, and I think this is truth, and so that can be a filter. So when I hear something, I I run it through my reason filter. Or the filter of experience. Experience, what I've experienced or how I feel about it. So I hear something that's supposed to be true, and I run it through the filter of my experience. Or tradition. Tradition, this is always great in the church. Okay? It's always been done this way, okay? It's always been done this way. So when I hear something supposed to be true, I run it through the tradition filter. Or letter D, peer pressure. 
It's coming through. This, this comes, everybody else is doing it, so I run it through the filter of everybody is involved in doing it. Or letter E, revelation. This is what God says. Oh, a filter that we can rely on. What does God's word say? What, what is the word of Christ? We'll talk more about that in a minute. But what filter do you use most often when you hear truth or what is supposed to be true? Reason, experience, tradition, peer pressure, or revelation? Those are filters that we have. We also have, number three, we have opposition to hearing truth. We have opposition to hearing truth. You mean there, there's an active plot to oppose truth? No, no, there can't be. Can't be, is there? Well, 2 Corinthians 4, 4 says this, the God of this age, who is Satan, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Ah, there's opposition, fighting, fighting the truth. The image means the exact representation of who God is. Satan, the God of this age, is playing defense, playing defense, trying to prevent people from seeing or hearing the truth. Sometimes we can't understand why people just do not see the truth about something. Remember, they may be blinded, blinded by the enemy. So that has to do with the hearing process. Let's look at truth. Let's look at truth, letter B. When Jesus stood trial before Pilate, Pilate asked the timeless question, what is truth? What is truth? What is truth? Jesus had said earlier in John 14, 6, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Truth is the revelation of God First of all, through creation and nature. Romans 1 talks about the fact that, that there is enough evidence of truth and who God is by looking at nature. All you have to do, take a hike, okay? Take a hike, walk up into the mountains, walk up into the hills, walk through the trees, look at the number of birds and the nature and the squirrels and the deer. I mean, it's like this, in Wisconsin, everybody has to believe in God. I mean, it's just like nature is incredible. Now, if you're from... North Dakota or something, you say, well, did God really make? No, I'm just kidding. Wisconsin, this is beautiful. You just look at nature, what God has done. And he said there's enough truth in nature that you've got to be able to see the truth in creation and nature. Then there's the word of God, the Bible, which is the revelation of God, the truth, which we have. And then there's Jesus. It said the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He is the truth. Truth is the, the revelation of God, the revelation of God. Jesus is truth. Jesus is the essence of truth, the message of truth, the revelation of truth. He's the eternal truth. And the truth of the gospel of our salvation that he's talking about, it's all part of our identity, is that we were chosen, we were adopted, we were bought or redeemed. And God has a plan. He has a plan, not just for history, but for each and every one of us. There's a beginning, there's a middle, and there's an end. This is not an endless cycle going in circles. It's not an accidental series of disconnected evolutionary events. There's a plan and an order. And everything in history comes as B.C. or A.D. They're trying to change that. But it is before Christ and Anno Domino, which means after Christ. They're now talking before common era. Don't, yeah, it's before Christ and after Christ. 
Okay, he's a center of, of, of history. That's the truth right there. And the plan that, that God set in motion culminated in Jesus Christ, the truth. He lived, he died, he was raised from the grave. And with that good news, the gospel comes, our transformation in our life changed. Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's truth. That's God's truth. God's truth. And the character of God is revealed in the word of God. It's revealed in the Ten Commandments affirmed by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. We have right, wrong, and truth. And today, truth, as you know, is, a, is an endangered species. Truth is on shaky ground in many people's mind. Not in actuality, but in people's mind. One poll found that only 22% of Americans, 22% believed in absolute truth. In other words, if you step off a tall building, only 22% believe that you'll go to the bottom of the building. I don't know. Is that an absolute truth? Is it not? I mean, hello, you sit on this pew, which holds probably X number of pounds, and you sit and you don't fall through the pew because absolute truth is it holds your weight. Okay, you know, we can look at all kinds of things that are absolutely true, absolutely true, but only 22%. Now, and about 73% in this poll surveyed said truth is relative. In other words, right and wrong or whatever you believe it to be. It's just, it's, everything's relative. Truth is an endangered species. And you know, it's been that way a long, long time. I will never forget, way back in 1989, some of you weren't born yet, but 1989, on the Donahue Show. How many of you remember Donahue? Okay, yeah. He was a television host, and they were addressing the issue at that point. It was pretty radical, the issue of homosexuality. Is it right or wrong? And Donahue had his panel of experts, a sociologist, psychologist, and a token member of the clergy. They always throw one of those guys in there. And they all made a case for what they believed was an acceptable lifestyle. Now, today, it could be same-sex marriage or transgenderism or changing whatever. It could be all kinds of things. And so Donahue, as he did, made his way to the audience with his microphone to ask them their opinion. And one woman in the back stood up, and Donahue, Donahue put his mic in front of her, and she said this, I don't care what all these people say. The Bible says it's wrong, and if the Bible says it's wrong, it's wrong. Donahue came back immediately and asked, do you mean to tell me that you're going to believe the Bible over the collective wisdom of all the experts? She said, absolutely yes. Absolutely yes. Well, all our hot moral issues today are more like same-sex marriage, transgenderism, polyamory, which is having multiple spouses in marital relationship. There's a city in Massachusetts. Past that, you can move there and have as many partners, spouses as you want. They recognize it as marriage. That's called poly, polyamory. Could be abortion. And I hear people say all the time, because we're talking about truth, hot-button issues. They say, let the people vote. Let's decide by referendum. Let's let the Supreme Court make that decision. Right. And we all know how referendums and court decisions have turned out. And since when do we actually vote on morality? Your truth, my truth, my morality, your morality. We're just going to kind of be lost on this sea of subjectivism. 
Are we going to accept the collective wisdom of all the experts, the pollsters, the judges, the legislators, the activists, or even the American people? No. We have to believe in truth, and the Word of God is truth. Truth is not negotiable. Truth is not relative. Truth is absolute. Truth is not negotiable. Truth is not relative. Truth is, is absolute. And we find it revealed to us by God through Jesus. In the Bible, the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of the living God, there is no other truth. Hear the truth. And then following hearing the truth is belief. Belief. The next phrase, here we get to believe the truth. The next phrase is, having believed the truth, you are marked in him with a seal. Let's look at Roman numeral two, believe the truth. Now, it's not enough to just hear the truth. It's not enough to acknowledge the truth. There is a, a response that's required. And that response is something called belief. Belief. Now, we separate in our world today, we separate intellectual belief in a propositional truth from belief in action. You, know, you can believe, but you don't have to act, you know, you have to live in it. But in Hebrew thought, in which the Bible was written, that is an artificial distinction. Belief has to include action. You can't just say, I believe it, but not act on it. There was an evangelical minister who boarded a train in New York City bound for Chicago. A Jewish rabbi also boarded the same train and seated himself across from this minister. And in the early minutes of their journey, in their conversation, the subject of Jesus Christ came up. It's inevitable. And the minister asked the rabbi if he believed that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. Good question. The rabbi replied, no, I do not. Well, during the 30-plus hours or so that it took to reach Chicago, the minister showed the rabbi from the rabbi's own scriptures prophecies that spoke of the Messiah and how Jesus fulfilled every one of those prophecies. And at the completion of the trip, the minister asked the rabbi if he now believed that Jesus was the Messiah, the Son of God. And the rabbi replied, Yes, I do. The minister then asked the rabbi if he would bow at Jesus' feet and accept him as Savior and Lord. The rabbi said, no. See, belief separated from action is not true belief. Let me say that again. Belief separated from action is not true belief. Believe intellectually. No action is not belief in the biblical sense. The prevailing philosophy is that truth is something you believe, but that's wrong. Truth is something we live. Truth is something we live. Vance Havner says, what we live is what we believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. <laughs> okay? What we live is what we believe. Everything else is so much religious talk. Belief and, and action are inseparable. Now, those who hear the truth believe the truth, in other words, embrace it, love it, and live it, then receive a guarantee. A guarantee. Ephesians 1, 13b through 14 says, having believed, you are marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit who is our deposit, 
guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So number three is sealed by the Holy Spirit. Sealed by the Holy Spirit. Now, again, it's important that we understand the grammatical structure. Those of, please don't zone out if you don't like grammar, but I'm just going to talk about what this word sealed in structure is in the original language. It's a first aorist passive indicative. Now, that just went right over everybody's head. That's fine. What that means is that, that it was an action in the past, and it has present results and ongoing results, and it's in the passive, so it was something, action taken on us. So when it says you were sealed by the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit took the action to seal us. It happened at a point in the past, and it has present and ongoing results. It's an incredible structure. And some of these verses, some of these words, when they have that, you look at that and say, wow, you get all that from one word in, the, in that tense. Yes, you do. Those who believed were sealed at a point in past by God the Holy Spirit, the action on them, and had present and ongoing results of that sealing. Now, seal has three main meanings. Seal has three main meanings. The meaning of the seal, letter A. Number one, it authenticates or conveys authority. It authenticates or conveys authority. Think about the notary seal, notary seal. You have an official document to sign, but it has to carry proof of your authentic signature. So you go into the bank or some other place and you bring your ID and the notary watches you sign and they notarizes it with his, his or her seal, authenticating, authenticating your signature, which then carries your authority. Okay? So seal, it, it authenticates or carries the authority of God. Okay? Secondly, a seal signifies ownership. If you are a rancher and you have cattle that run free, like out in Wyoming or South, maybe South Dakota, I don't know, you probably want to put a brand of some sort. So you, it's, it's, it's my, they're my... My cattle, so I'm going to put circle N. So it's Nordvet's cattle. So I put circle N. That's my seal of ownership. That's my ownership. So if you run across a cow, it's a, yeah, circle N, that's mine. Okay, just so you know, it's my ownership. And thirdly, a seal also signifies security and safety. Security and safety. What I once sent, uh, several times, but one, once in particular, I sent an important document through the mail. And when I sent it through the mail... I sent it by registered mail, but it was a higher level of registration because it had along the, the seal, it had stamps along the seal of the envelope so that you could see if it was opened or not. It made it secure. They used to do that with wax. They had wax seal it. But basically, that means that it is secure because it was used as a seal. Now, Jesus has given us the Holy Spirit as a seal. And it contains all three of those applications. The Holy Spirit in us authenticates. Authenticates. It, it conveys authority that we are really God's children. It signifies ownership that we belong to God. We belong to God. It's a seal. It shows that we're secure and we're safe. That nobody can remove our adoption or redemption or our sonship. We're secure in that relationship with God. We're secure as a member of God's eternal family. 
The seal God has given us is the Holy Spirit. Christ in you, the hope of glory. This is part of our identity. It's important that we understand that when we believe, we receive Jesus, he seals us with his Holy Spirit. It's the guarantee. The guarantee. The presence of the Holy Spirit in our life is the final proof, the demonstration to others of the genuineness of what we believed. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We're changed internally, and the evidence is external. So the Holy Spirit's presence in our life is the seal. And letter B, the seal guarantees our inheritance. It guarantees our inheritance. Verse 14 says, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance? Deposit. Now, you want to buy a house. What do you do? You put earnest money down. It's a deposit to show you're serious. You put this money down guaranteeing that the rest of it's going to follow. Okay? So you put a deposit down. The Holy Spirit is the deposit guaranteeing that the rest of it is going to follow. It's the first installment. Now, when we give our life to Christ and we're born again, his Holy Spirit moves in and takes up residence in us. That does not mean that we have all of the Holy Spirit. And actually, we do not possess the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit possesses us. What this means, this deposit, is that we have not experienced the totality or fullness of what we will have someday in the future. In the future. In the kingdom of God in the future, we'll experience that totality. That's called sanctification, or in Wesleyan terms, entire sanctification. When we go home to be with Jesus, we'll experience that fullness of the entirety of the Holy Spirit in us. Right now, we experience a deposit and increasingly more of him all the time. We experience the Holy Spirit. It's like a down payment on what we're going to experience in the future. That's the seal. That's the guarantee. 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we'll see face to face. The Holy Spirit is given to us as a deposit, a down payment, guaranteeing our future and the culmination of all things. Guaranteeing what exactly? Our inheritance. Our eternal life. Are we redeemed now? Yes. Are we God's possession now? Yes. Have we been chosen? Yes. Have we been adopted? Yes. Are we children of God? Yes. Are we indwelt by the Holy Spirit? Yes. But have we realized the total fullness of that yet? No. But we will. I guarantee it, Jesus says. God guarantees it by his Holy Spirit. I've shared this before, but I want to share it again. Several years ago, I attended a conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Not the craziness that's there now, but this was quite a long time ago. And on the 40-minute flight from Louisville to Cincinnati, where I was to transfer a plane to go back to Seattle, I sat next to a man named Sanjav, an orthopedic surgeon who is an immigrant from India. Most people from other countries are very open to having a conversation about a wide range of topics. So after asking about his occupation, his background, his family, his journey to the United States, I asked him 
what religion he practiced. He said he was a Hindu. And I said to him, you know, I've studied comparative religions, but I prefer to hear directly from the people that practice their religion. As a Hindu, what is it that you believe and practice? Sanjay was very animated and engaging as he talked about his beliefs. He talked about the three major tenets of his religion. His children were enrolled in religious parochial school, and I asked him if that presented any conflicts or challenges to him. His answer was no. He said all religions are pretty much the same. We're a bilingual family. I guess we also practice by religion. I thought that was a very interesting statement. Then he further expanded his beliefs by talking about the life cycle. This was the life cycle in his faith. He said, hypothetically, let's say we each have a life of 100 years. I would divide that life into four parts, four parts into my life. The first quarter, the first 25 years, are preparation or training. He said the second quarter, the second 25 years, are marriage, family, occupation, and accumulation. He said the third quarter, the third 25 years, are trying to wean oneself from materialism. I said, I can identify. I got two kids in college. And then he said the final quarter, 25 years, is preparation for the beyond. I asked him, after that, then what? He said, well, well that, that's controversial. I believe if you've been good and practiced your religion, you can earn the right to come back again. Reincarnation. I asked, what if you're not good enough? Well, he kind of frowned and he said, well, there are two tracks, one for good and one for bad. He said, don't you Christians have something like that? Heaven and, he paused and I said, yeah, heaven and, and hell. So I asked him, how, how do you know where you're going? He said, you can't know. You hope. I said to Sanjav, that is where Christianity delivers, differs from all other religions. We believe you can know. And I explained the difference between every other religion and Christianity. All other religions being described in the word do. It's about trying to do enough good things to please God. The problem is we can never know when we've done enough. In fact, the Bible tells us we can never do enough. We fall short. Christianity is described by the word done. Jesus did what we could never do. He lived a perfect life. We could not. He died on the cross to pay for our wrongdoings. Do is trying to appease God, never knowing if we've done enough. Done is Christianity. Jesus died to pay the price. We received the gift. He offers us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Very perceptively, Sanjav asked, so if you receive the gift, it doesn't matter what you do. I said, no, when we receive the gift of Jesus, the Holy Spirit, our nature is changed. We are born again, so it is our nature to do good deeds. We don't earn God's favor by good deeds. God's Holy Spirit changes us, so as a result, we then do good deeds. I said, good deeds are not causative for salvation. Good deeds are the result of our salvation. And I quoted 1 John 5, 11 to 13. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. He who has the son, Jesus, has life. He who does not have the son of God, Jesus, does not have the life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God that so that you may know that you have eternal life. 
Sanjav said, I guess there's a big difference between all other religions and Christianity. And I said, yes. We have a guarantee. Do you have that guarantee? Hear the word of truth. Believe the word of truth. Place your trust in what Jesus has done, not what you can do. And then you can know beyond any shadow of a doubt that you have eternal life. Guaranteed. God says it. I guarantee it. Let's bow our heads for a moment. If you're here this morning or you're out in one of the houses next to the parking lot or you're in your car this morning listening on FM, maybe listening to this online later, and if you're here and you've not experienced that relationship with God, you can. It's a simple prayer that says, Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe in you and open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of my life and make me the person you want me to be. I'm going to pray that again, slowly. And if that expresses your desire this morning, you've never prayed that prayer before, pray it silently as I pray it aloud. Lord Jesus, I need you. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I believe in you and open the door of my life and receive you as my Savior and Lord. Thank you for forgiving me of my sins and giving me eternal life. Take control of the throne of my life and make me the person you want me to be. Amen. Now, if you prayed that prayer for the very first time today, I want to invite you to take the first-time guest card that we have. And on the front of that card, in the upper right-hand corner, is a little box. Just put a little X on that box. If you're listening online or you're listening in a car, I invite you to make a phone call or send an email. Let me know. My email's on there, on the, on the program you have. And let me know that you prayed that prayer. We have, a, we have some things that we'd want to point you to give you some information about how to follow up on that so that you're not just believing in mind, but you're also believing in reality. And so you can know that that Holy Spirit has been given to you as a seal and so you, too, have that guarantee. Let's stand, shall we?